Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans 8, reading verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word and we ask that you would teach us and that you would guide us, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things of your precepts and of all your promises. We come as dependent. We must be taught by you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak for your servants who are listening. Amen. During this season of anxiety and adversity, in which there seems literally to be trouble lurking around every corner, we don't know what's next, We've taken some time to consider what it, means to be, what it means to commune with God, recognizing that that is our greatest need in every season of life, to be fed by Him. And so over the past 10 weeks, we've given slow, very detailed attention to the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer, not the only prayer that a Christian is to say, but a prayer that is to inform the shape of our supplications, the direction of our desires, and also is to orient our approach to God. It has a great deal to teach us. It teaches us how to speak to God. But today, we turn our attention in a different direction towards communing with God. Now we attend to God's speech to us. And this is why we come to Psalm 119. And for five weeks, we'll work through the themes of this psalm. It is the longest of all the psalms in the entire collection of 150. And perhaps it's daunting to you. Many have found this psalm to be tedious, extremely repetitious. One commentator even goes so far to say, because of these features, this psalm is just a bore. But it's important to note that these repeated themes and the repetition in the psalm, that they take these different angles, and that is intentional, that this happens for a reason. And all the repetition establishes a focus for us in which we can concentrate. This focus is established by the structure of the psalm, and there's four things in particular that I need to point out to you very briefly about the structure of Psalm 119. First, the psalm, you may note, is divided into 22 different sections. That is one section per letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the psalm is designed to be comprehensive, to teach you the A to Z of what it means to listen to God's speech. The second is that each of those 22 sections has eight verses. The third, is that each verse in each of those sections begins with the letter of the alphabet that it corresponds to. So it's very detailed. 
And then inside of those eight verses, there are eight terms that are used interchangeably. They are synonyms, you could say, and they speak to the same theme over and over. Those eight terms are law, or you could translate that instruction, testimony, precept, statute, commandment, rule, or as the ESV notes, that would probably be better translated decree, word, and promise. And you will find that these are used all throughout this psalm, interchangeably speaking of the same thing. They are littered throughout. And they're synonyms for one concept, one theological concept that's lurking in the background. If you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 as Moses introduces the covenant between God and Israel, you would find in verses 113 that several of these terms pile up there. And then finally in verse 13, Moses introduces the key word that all these things point to, law, testimony, precept, statute, commandment, decree. It all points to the covenant that God forges with his people, the covenant that God swears. And so the goal of this entire psalm, all 176 verses and all the so-called boring repetition is to provide a complete and comprehensive instruction about what it looks like to commune with God in a covenant partnership with him. The psalm takes the topic to the limits of literary expression. It presses it as far as Hebrew poetry knew how to go. And as we consider that covenant partnership this morning, there's three things in particular, three broad things that we'll note. The first is the primacy of God's commitment to us. The second is the purpose then of our corresponding commitment to God. And third, the unresolved problem within these two commitments. And so we'll look at each of those briefly this morning. First, the primacy of God's commitment to us. Many Christians are prone to dismiss Psalm 119 as an elaborate reminder of the do's and don'ts of the Christian life. It's very important to note that this is quite a short-sighted view of these terms, law, testimony, precepts, statute, commandment, and rules. That these don't simply refer to the one-way direction of our obedience to God. We've seen that the central concept lurking behind each of those terms is the concept of covenant. And if we ever want to learn what it is to properly relate to God and what it could possibly mean to love God, we have to grasp what a covenant is. In the Bible, it's essential to note that a covenant never begins with our commitment to God. But rather where the covenant always begins is with God's prior initiation to us. That God says in Exodus 6, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. It's not some decision we cook up. It's not some merit that we accrue that then makes, him, makes us pleasing to him. Know that the covenant always begins with God condescending to us and coming to us and mercifully forgiving our sins and adopting us. Think where the Ten Commandments begin. It's a summary of the whole covenant relationship. 
And many would say, well, it begins with a command, and it actually doesn't. It begins with a statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And friends, that is your God. He initiates. His grace is prior. And this is where any covenant relationship begins. The covenant partnership is not between equals, but it's a partnership between a great king and a lowly vassal. And the vassal has been adopted and brought into the family, not on anything based on his own achievements or merits. There is no sense in which our response earns this initiation. Grace is always the first word from God. There is a corresponding obedience, gratitude that we express, but that never earns that first word. And in our relationship with God, it always begins in his promise to us in Jesus What he has done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection has canceled out our sins, has made us his people. We are adopted and we're owned by him. And we can say with Psalm 119, buried in the depths of this, that I am yours. We belong to God because of his initiating grace. We're in covenant partnership because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And it is in this context that obedience is then rightly framed. Many of you may ask, well, Chuck, we've heard this before, and why is it so important to repeat it? That grace is the first word of the Christian life, and obedience and gratitude is the second word. And it's so important because I can't tell you how tiring it is and how wearying it is to sit with people and to talk with them about why they have left the Christian church. And nine times out of ten is not a sophisticated intellectual argument at all. But so many times it's because I was just bored and I was tired of the rules. And so in this leaving, there's a fundamental misunderstanding expressed. And no wonder they left. Who would want to be part of that? But when we catch the majesty of the covenant of God's gracious love that's poured out in Jesus, that forgives our sins and brings us into communion and relationship, it's an entirely different construct. And so again and again we must be reminded. Again and again we must hear it. Again and again we must cherish it and relish it. Promise always precedes precept. This is the order that God reveals himself to us. The second important thing to note from Psalm 119 in this covenant partnership is the purpose then of our corresponding commitment to God. When we've been loved by this God, when we've been made his own people, we then give ourselves to him. We freely give ourselves to him. That is a process in which we often stumble. Verse 4 captures it. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. As those who have been bought and those who have been redeemed, as God's forgiven people, we then desire his guidance. As many of you know, I'm a sucker for history. Always have been. And that turned into my favor when studying as a student in seminary. 
I was at Second Presbyterian Church studying as an intern and in a worship class. It was a self-study. I was given a stack of books to read. And one of the books was really dull and dry. It was a collection of all the liturgies of the Western Church. And I was assigned to write summaries of all those different liturgies and to analyze why things were in the places they were. I started that exercise perhaps a bit bored. It was tedious, and I wanted to get through it. But as in the midst of studying those different orders of worship from the church across the ages that I began to learn something, and I remembered why I loved history. Because oftentimes in studying history, you receive a correction about your present moment. And it was one of my intellectual mentors, John Calvin, who was particularly illuminating in this study of liturgies of the church. Because there had been a long tradition in the church where the Ten Commandments were read prior to the confession of sin. It's very appropriate. We've done it here at Christ Church. The commandments reveal and expose us. But Calvin, during one period of his pastoral ministry, he didn't actually read the commandments prior to confession. Do you know where he put them? He had them read after confession. Now, it's so intriguing. I saw that as I was taking my notes, and why did he do that? And this is why. It was because his deep conviction of what he called the third use of the law, that the law was there for our good, that not only does it convict us, but it also guides us. And so as the forgiven people, we need to hear the will of God, that he can guide us and lead us in the path, and that he can instruct us. We're not earning anything from him. We've been forgiven by him, and now what does it mean to serve him? That I am yours, and so do with me as you will. This was the direction of what he was teaching. And God does deliver us from the condemnation of the law through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he brings us into the good and wise counsel of the law under Christ. And this is what's essential for us when we begin to understand the purpose of our commitment to God. That these commands are not arbitrary. They're not just rules to test whether you really love him. But rather the commandments are given for our good. They're given for our protection. They're given for our flourishing as human beings. This is captured well in verse 73. Please look down in the psalm for that. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The creator in whom we live, in whom we move, in whom we have our being, gives us commands. And these commands are never designed or intentioned to harm us. But they are designed and intentioned for our life then to be lived according to his design. He who dreamed up and thought up what it meant for a human being to be a human being has then given commandments that are to guide you into that path of what it means for you to flourish as a human being. And so the law of God is never restrictive. The law of God is freeing you to be truly and fully what God always intended for you to be. And so when we worship one God, and we don't yield to anything else, we bow down and give ourselves to nothing else, we are free to be human. 
When we observe one day out of seven, and we give that day for worship and meditation of God, and we rest from our normal work, we're free to be human. When we observe sexual intimacy inside the context that God defines, we're free to be human. When we tell the truth, when we don't shade it or distort it, when we don't speak lies, we're actually free to be human. And when we're content with what God gives us, not lusting after the possessions of others, we're free to be human. This is the beauty and the design of God's law. And what we have to rehabilitate is our trust in God's goodness, that when he commands us, he'll never harm us. And so trust him and give yourself freely to him and understand the purpose of why he calls you to be committed to him. It is for your good. And finally, as we look at this broad psalm, all 176 verses, we also note that there's an unresolved problem, a tension between these two commitments of the God who is for us and the God who we are to be for. The psalm begins with a statement of the one who is blessed. In verse 1, the one who is blessed is the one who is blameless. To be blameless means to be single-minded, to have integrity, not to have two faces, a double heart. And many of you may read those words and say, well, that disqualifies me. (laughs) Who can manage such a thing? But the psalmist also acknowledges something that's essential in the final verse of the psalm. Verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Happens in several other places in the psalm as well. And it's critical to recognize something about the structure of the psalm. Because you can ask, well, why does he speak of being blameless, and then why does he admit that he's gone astray? It doesn't feel like those two work together. The first three verses of the psalm are doctrine. It's laid out there the goal. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. There's then a shift from verse 3 to verse 4. The formal doctrine passes on, and we turn then to prayer. We go from precept to prayer. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. The psalmist is calling out for help. And he's recognizing that there is weakness. There is corruption. There is adversity. There is our flesh. There is a corrupt world around us. And we live inside of all that weakness. And we too are prone to wonder. Like lost sheep. And friends, yes, the goal of blessedness is out in front of us, and we affirm and see the path. But our corruption and the tension that lives inside of us as imperfect people on the way to resurrection is not a problem that God is deaf to. He doesn't ignore it. And so turn to the final section of the psalm as it closes. 
And it's here that we see the path forward for wandering sheep. For those who struggle with that commitment to God, for those who know his commitment to you, his all that he's done for us, but then who struggle with that commitment. Verse 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. And so he's crying out to God, and he asks for illumination that he have knowledge. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. God, according to your covenant promise, be who you have promised to be for me and give me deliverance. 171, my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. All that you have revealed is good and so I'll praise you for it is what he says. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right Further praise offered. 173, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules, let your decrees help me. And friends, this is the shape of the wandering life. The one, the life that knows God's prior commitment to us, his initiating grace, the first word. And then the life that strives to live according to God's purpose and to affirm the goodness of his law. That we cry out to him. We ask for deliverance. That we praise him. That we ask him to illuminate us. That we ask for his help. And that we can freely acknowledge that we're wandering sheep. As a Christian, your goal at the front of the service is not to avoid confession. It's rather to recognize that you're free to confess because God's love has enfolded your life. And then we go to his word and we say, guide us and lead us. Take us down the path. Show us and speak, Lord. Because as we encounter the teaching of scripture, we encounter the teacher himself. Yes, God has spoken these words in history, But by his spirit, God is speaking today. And it's the same God who spoke them, who affirms them today of his great love for you in Jesus Christ and initiating love that can't be broken or busted in which he holds you firmly and assigns you a righteousness you could never earn for yourself. And it is that same God who then commands you. And can you hear him? Can you hear the graciousness and the goodness of that instruction that he's leading you into good paths? He's leading you beside quiet waters. He's leading you into green pasture. That's what his commandments do for us. Hear him as he reminds you of his commitment to you and hear him as he guides you into the path of life and flourishing. This is the message, the broad message of Psalm 119. Take the challenge up of reading it over the next five weeks, over and over. Allow it to focus your attention. Consider it. Concentrate on it. And live in the freedom of all that God has revealed. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your great covenant. To walk in your ways is the way of life. 
And to walk in your ways affirms your great initiation with us. When we were lost, when we were in our sins, you have come for us in Jesus. And now you speak a good word that guides us into all the ways of truth. And so save us, God, from ourselves, from our autonomy, and help us. May we entrust ourselves fully to you because you have done everything for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.